welcome. This is the next of the History of Anatomy podcasts. Getting hold of bodies, the genesis of the Anatomy Act of 1832 and the traffic of corpses to the medical schools. I start usually with a few quotes. Um, this comes from Sir Astley Cooper, 1768-1841. to was part of his report to the select committee appointed by the House of Commons to inquire into the manner of obtaining subjects for dissection in the schools of anatomy. It was uh, the Parliamentary Select Committee of 1828. Quote, It's not our cause but yours if you have none but ignorant medical men. It is you who suffer from it, and the fact is that the want of subjects will very soon lead to your becoming the unhappy victims of operations founded and performed in ignorance. Astley Cooper was also later quoted directly as saying that, quote, there is no person, let his station be what it may, whom, if I were disposed to dissect, I could not obtain. The law only enhances the price and does not prevent the exhumation. An extraordinary sort of degree of arrogance about how they would acquire dead bodies to dissect. G.D. Spencer, in a poem on the Hubberton Road, as it was called, read in the Congregationalist Church of Hubberton in May of 1880. Who would want the mortal remains of wife, mother, daughter, sister, upon the block with veins and arteries, nerves, muscles exposed to view? That's the public perception of what was going on in the dissection rooms. And this one also from Louis Sebastien Mercier, 1740 to 1814, uh, from his uh, Le Tableau de Paris, um, which was quoted uh, by René de Chateaubriand in his 1793 uh, Memoire d'Outre-Temps, the, the Memories of, uh, of the Tomb, uh, published in uh, Paris in 1925. They, that is the younger surgeons, set out in groups of four, take a carriage and scale the walls of a cemetery. One deals with the dog who guards the dead. The next goes down into the grave with a ladder. The third straddles the wall and throws over the cadaver. And the fourth picks it up and puts it in the carriage. By the early 18th century, the anatomists and their eager surgeons in training had an unquenchable desire to dissect dead bodies. But the existent means that left some judicial discretion for handing over executed murderers or access to corpses which had been allocated from the annual royal quotas of assent didn't meet the demand. But this time in England, the extant legislation, the Murder Act of 1752 was proving problematic, frequently resulting in considerable violence whenever the surgeons waiting at Gallows Fields wanted to claim their bodies. This objectionable business had forced them to extensively lobby sympathetic parliamentarians with their appeals to utilitarian House members who were in a position to legislate a new law that could take care of this problem. 
the drafting, support and passage of that law, the Anatomy Act of 1832, is the subject of this podcast. But even though this story had been written before, I mention it here really with a principal interest, uh, not in those dissectors, but rather more in the cadaver and in how the Chosium milieu of the late 18th century and the early 19th century England was instrumental actually in enabling the enactment of this law and quite getting in a sense to this calamitous point. There's some broad conditional similarity in America if you look at that, although theirs is a history where the Civil War and its aftermath exacerbated a culture of shipment of black and indigent bodies. The states were forced to enact individual laws which took their cues largely from British law on how to govern the movement of corpses to the various medical schools around the country. In the United Kingdom, the final piece of legislation that resulted was not, however, the product of a righteous lobby. One on both sides of the Atlantic, in many cases, the surgeons had been fairly openly bartering with ragtags of marauding gangs whose business was to disinter bodies in all stages of decomposition and then sell them to the medical schools. It was a totally unsavoury alliance for which in the face of vehement public denial there was often an equivalent tacit acknowledgement of the practice in private. Their attitude was, however, a reflection of a broader disdain that many surgeons had for their hapless patients in, in life, particularly at a time when the conduct of surgery was so barbaric and frequently so lethal. In this podcast, alongside the story of two notorious men, William Burke, 1792-1829, and William Hare, 1792, and we're not quite sure when he died, who preyed upon Edinburgh's vulnerable masses, killing the elderly, frail and the intellectually disabled, and then selling their bodies to the nearest waiting surgeon, Robert Knox, 1791-1862. That's a tale of one poor surgical patient, additionally that I'll tell Stephen Pollard, who blindly put his faith in the hospital system and one of its lauded surgeons with disastrous consequences. The story of Pollard actually puts a name, at least, (coughs) to some of the carnage which was taking place inside infirmary walls at a time when the new legislation had just permitted the surgeons to dissect anyone who died in an infirmary or workhouse and whose body was then left unclaimed. The threat of dissection after death now reached into every poor household, even if there was no guarantee by the Anatomy Act itself that all of this increased exposure to the dead and to their dissection would make the surgeons any more competent. There is, however, a little historical ground to go over. In the late 1820s, the status quo concerning body access had just about everyone unhappy. The passage by the Parliament of the 1752 Murder Act, or more correctly, I should call it, an Act of Parliament for better preventing the horrid crime of murder, would not have moved either William or John Hunter to any great joy. The new statute gave judges the discretional power to add an anatomisation of the body on top of a sentence of execution, with timely transfer of the corpse 
to the company of surgeons. But that didn't help those running their private anatomy classes where the handovers of bodies were often not particularly expeditious. If it wasn't the need to bribe officials along the way, often including the judge, then there was the prospect of fights over the body which, uh, or over the body remains, which would almost invariably break out in the shadow of the gallows at London's main hanging tree at Tyburn between the surgeon's representatives and the friends and family of the deceased. Even if condemned criminals were undeterred by the prospect of hanging, there was a general fear of a public dissection after death and of its implicit religious connotations. The rest of the public, hungry enough to witness open-air hangings, came, however, to resent the greed and venal attitude of the rather grubby surgeons and their acolytes. William Hunter, through his prurient interest in reproductive anatomy, had even railed against the government for not making provision within the new law for the hanging of pregnant women convicted of capital offences. The increased demand for dissectable bodies outstripped the supply to a point that anyone running a private anatomy school, such as that of the Hunters in Great Windmill Street, needed access to corpses that could, by and large, not be legally obtained. Hunter had only recently rather proudly advertised that students would be able to take advantage of the Parisian method of dissection, where each student could have his own body to dismember. He'd advertised that in the London Evening Post on January the 12th, 1748. Quote, if you like, that on Monday the 1st of February at 5 in the afternoon we'll begin a course of anatomical lectures to which will be added the operations of surgery with the application of bandages by William Hunter, surgeon. Gentlemen may have an opportunity of learning the art of dissecting during the whole winter season in the same manner as at Paris, unquote. That was in their advertisement. But the whole unseemly process of acquiring a body had ushered in an era where the hunters were widely suspected, along with many other prominent surgeons, of a collusive partnership with nefarious bands of grave robbers and body snatchers. There's a wealth of excellent literature on this. On the English side, the best offering, I think, is Ruth Richardson's Death, Dissection and the Destitute, the University of Chicago Press in 1987. On the American side, certainly Michael Sapol's A Traffic of Dead Bodies, Anatomy and Embodied Social Identity in 19th Century America, which was put out by Princeton University Press in 2002. And there's a lovely pamphlet by Alan Guttmacher called uh, Bootlegging Bodies, A History of Body Snatching, which comes from the Public Library in Fort Wayne and Allen County. It's an old one from 1955, but it's been reprinted in the Bulletin of the Society of Medicine of Chicago in 1935. Um, it's a re- 1955 reprint of the original Guttmacher article of 1935. The case such as it is against these most prominent and aristocratic alleged accomplices like the Hunters remains, I think, circumstantial, but it was begrudgingly accepted at the time in the literature, the newspapers, and by the caricaturists in their lampooning cartoons, so everyone knew that the surgeons were involved with the body snatchers and grave robbers. The formal business of dissection became more of an imperative in teaching with the foundation under the impetus of the hunters of the modern English infirmary. 
and these were places which encompassed the practical value of clinical examination. And for those patients who ended up dead in the infirmary, who demised a thorough appreciation afterwards of the cause of death with an autopsy. Anatomy, both living and dead, took on a specific importance under this schema, focusing on the template of how to examine patients with techniques and protocols devised by the continental clinicians like René Lenick, the inventor of the stethoscope, or Bichat and Hermann Borhave. Bichat, in particular, made his reputation on meticulously following his cases through the course of their illness and then onwards through to death if that occurred, ultimately correlating his clinical impressions with the post-mortem findings and the effects on every organ. In his short clinical career, Javier Bichat, which was 1771 to 1802, died very young, wrote two books which influenced patient examination and the departmental structure of hospitals. The first of these books in 1799, uh, really written when he was only about 28, the Traité sur les membranes, the Treatise on Membranes, separated the body into definitive systems and tissue types. And that was achieved without the aid of the microscope and before the delineation of the basic unit of tissues, the cell. His 1800, Recherche Physiologique sur la vie et la mort, the general anatomy applied to physiology and medicine during life and death, outlined his extensive work connecting the symptoms and signs which were found in patients in life with those he was able to delineate at autopsy. This 19th century ideal had revived the autopsy when the taxonomy of organic disease initiated the fragmentation of medicine into new departments, which included pathology, microbiology and immunology. And these subspecialties were all reliant on an anatomical understanding. Pathologists borrowing, if you like, even the anatomist's calipers and scales for the measurement of their organs so that they could compare them with the normal range. With the microscopic identification of bacteria towards the end of the 19th century and their implication in important diseases like anthrax and tuberculosis, the work of uh, Pasteur and Koch, it was hoped that all disease could be defined by the new germ theory. The immunologists too, in their dissection of the host response, fully expected that all conditions, including cancer for that matter, could be managed by as yet unidentified antibacterial therapies. And it's said that the germ or parasitic theory had been postulated in the late 19th century, as I've said by Louis Pasteur, 1822-1895, and by Robert Koch, 1843-1910. And before them, the naturalist Francesco Redi, 1626-1697, had debunked the idea of infection which arose by spontaneous generation. This is a so-called abiogenesis, where life formed from non-living matter. That was the initial theory. And all of that was confirmed, converted, by Pasteur's thesis that all life was derived from life, what he said, omne vivum ex vivo. So these were the changes that were occurring particularly towards the late part of the 1800s. 
the tradition of cadaveric dissection as part of the undergraduate experience was then a necessary prerequisite for the clinical and laboratory devolution of medicine that was going on and the postulated way forward if clinicians were ever going to understand the nature of their patients' illnesses. So these were the kind of natural progressions. You were properly examining your patients in life. You were using René Lenech's stethoscope. There were no X-rays before 1895. And you were then supplementing what you thought was going on physically in the patients with a post-mortem examination and the effects on every organ, assuming it to be some disturbance of infection or immunology. Although the anatomists had the practical problem of procuring a steady stream of corpses, they still needed to reconcile their philosophical and religious views with the practice. And despite this caveat, however, it's hardly surprising that the business of getting one's hands on a body became such a reprehensible enterprise. Examination of cadavers became the motif of the medical schools, and the steady acquisition of dead bodies became a principal currency around their competitiveness. But the practical consequence of the association between surgeons and resurrectionists, as they were called, meant that a further 100 years would pass before the reputation of the anatomists could actually be restored. Even for those dissecting the body for religious reasons, the conduct of anatomy was a product of its time. Its coordinates articulated outside of the dissecting rooms by the moral philosophers of the New Enlightenment. The body was seen as dispensable, with John Locke's social contract concerned with the rights of propertied men and avowing that people, and bodies in particular, could be seen as commodities. In one way, the ordinary person also fitted into Adam Smith's economy, where the wealth of a a nation was described in terms of the intrinsic labour value of its individuals. In another, Thomas Malthus uh, fashioned his hypothesis of an expanding population, where the group collectively would ultimately and indiscriminately end up consuming its own resources. Uh, I mention these things because the philosophers were sitting in the dissecting rooms. You had to have a particular philosophy if you were dissecting. And so what was occurring in the Enlightenment, whether it be Locke or Adam Smith's economy or Thomas Malthus's view of population, did affect how corpses were actually considered and then utilised as a resource. Either way, the legacy of Renaissance humanism, which had centred around the body of man reinforced a corporeal disposability where individuals might, in certain circumstances, fully expect to be sacrificed and anatomised for the common good. And even if there were those who securely felt insulated from such a fate, there was a familiarity with the parsimony of human life. The 19th century had begun well with the splendours of the Industrial Revolution, but it ended with the crowding together of people into communities of abject squalor upon which the Victorian scourge of consumption, tuberculosis, thrived. After the company of both barbers and surgeons had been afforded the rights of public dissections on four felons a year, they had the luxury of performance of their dissecting lessons in a dedicated theatre which was designed by the playhouse architect Inigo Jones and formally opened by King Charles I 
1638. The private schools then had not yet been formed, and those attempting outside the imprimatur of the company of surgeons to obtain the body of an executed felon were vigorously prosecuted. From as early as the 1640s, the surgeons or their agents had been milling around the gallows, jostling and fighting for the right to dissect those corpses no one was particularly interested in. But the mercenary callousness of the surgeons and their acolytes bothered even those who came to gawp at any public execution. In some measure, to perhaps pay for their families in lieu of the costs of their imprisonment, some prisoners in Newgate, which acted as a holding station for those awaiting execution, some prisoners attempted to barter their bodies. By the 19th century, after an expansion of criminal offence statutes, there was a complex prison system in the south of England, which was dedicated to the hierarchy of criminals and their types of offences, and which directly affected the surgeons and their ability to acquire corpses from a selected pool of reprobates. And just for this information, of the 18 prisons in and around the city of London, Ludgate was for debtors and bankrupts, and the fleet housed offenders of the courts of chancery. The Star Chamber and Newgate were specifically built for felons and those awaiting execution. The clink was used for religious offenders and misdemeanours, the king's bench for debtors and trespassers, and the marshalsea for piracy and other maritime offences. And they occasionally the surgeons could get a source for dissection from the marshalsea. The East Smithfield prison was for petty thieves and the new prison for heretics and blasphemers. Bethlehem, or Bedlam as it was called, was the main madhouse for the insane, and Bridewell was a house of correction for prostitutes and vagrants. Now, initially the surgeons could at least take some solace in a judiciary which was wholly determined to bring its criminals to justice. Most justices held a favourable disposition towards the death penalty, with over time more opportunities to impose such a sentence. But as a source of bodies for the anatomists to dissect, the issue is a little complicated. Between 1688 and 1820, capital statutes permitting imposition of the death penalty grew from about 50 to over 200, where with the social emphasis on property, about 80% were property-related offences, people stealing bits of property, which turned out to be capital offences. The period was so punitive that it received the moniker of the bloody code, but there was some discretional commutation of many sentences. Between 1770 and 1830, of the 35,000 condemned to death, only about a fifth were actually executed, an effect wholly reliant on judicial discretion, since at this time there were no defence counsels who would represent the accused. From the surgeon's point of view, however, even without the commutations, the numbers were insufficient for the dissecting need, executions diminishing even further with royal or judicial pardons that substituted a sentence of death with a fixed period of transportation to the colonies, there's an excellent review on this um, by uh, Sir Leon Radzinowicz. It's uh, an old series of volumes. But the situation did not get much better numerically for the anatomists a generation on 
with between 1805 to 1820, some 1,150 executions in England and Wales. For the hundreds of students, that would have left only about 80 bodies to dissect for the entire region per year. So really the numbers didn't work out at all. By comparison with the more lenient judges, however, some like the clergyman barrister Martin Maiden, 1726 to 1790, relish the opportunity not only of donning the black hat in the sentencing of death, but also the red towel that consigned the convicted to dissection and which struck a particular fear of God into transgressors and those contemplating heinous crimes who faced his bench. Writing his uh, curious but descriptive Thelifthera, a treatise on female ruin, he was a very strong advocate for polygamy as the panacea for much that ailed Britain, but he was most certain of the role that the death penalty played in restoring social order. His lordship, uh, he wrote in 1785, quote, deeply affected by the melancholy part of his office, embraces this golden opportunity to do most exemplary good. He addresses in the most pathetic terms the consciences of the trembling criminals and shows them that there should be laws to remove out of society those who, instead of contributing their honest industry to the public good and welfare, have exerted every art that the blackest villainy can suggest to destroy both. That comes from his work, Thoughts on Executive Justice with respect to our criminal laws, particularly on the circuit, which he wrote in 1785. It's pretty harsh stuff. The surgeons, like the public, knew the rituals of execution and both planned around the formalities of a hanging. The condemned would have to wait for the tolling of the bell of St Sepulchre rung at midnight the night before they were to be hanged. On the fateful day, they would course the (coughs) slow cart ride accompanied by only a chaplain. Members of the public, for a small jailer's fee, could view the prisoner's cell, and a raucous crowd would line the streets, gawping, shouting, and spitting at the condemned as a final indignity, with the chance to pelt them with rocks as they travelled the three or so miles from Newgate to Tyburn. The gathering mob took on a carnival-like atmosphere, stopping traffic near the Smithfield markets, and all the way up to Holborn, if people know London, with by arrival at the great tree a hushed silence, and only the sonorous chanting of the clerk of the court audible, quote, that you are, that are condemned to die, repent with lamentable tears, ask mercy of the Lord for salvation of your souls, unquote. At Gallows Field there was always the opportunity for the anatomists and their agents to directly haggle over the fees and bribes for corpses. Uh, This scene has been beautifully caricatured by William Hogarth in the 11th plate, the so-called idle prentice of his 1747 series, Industry and Idleness. The mere touch of the corpse after death was thought to cure a myriad of skin complaints and cancers, along with scrofula, which is the tuberculous collection of neck glands, hideous goiters, thyroid enlargements, the withering of disused limbs, and even infertility. These were all thought to be 
improve by just touching a hanged corpse. In general, the company of surgeons had no particular interest in the nature of the crimes, only that their quarry would be handed over with a minimum of fuss or fighting. Although, like their continental partners, they had a set of ideals in the physical specimens they preferred to dissect, they liked them young and thin and fit with a minimum of disease, they were hardly in a position to pick and choose. By 1783, the hangings had been moved from Tyburn, which is now near Marble Arch, to the grounds of Newgate Prison, where they could still be witnessed, but with much less social disorder. It wasn't until 1868 that hangings at Newgate ceased to be open to the public. The Tyburn tree, actually a movable gallows, had been used as a hanging site since the 12th century, and after the last hanging and anatomisation there on the 3rd of November of John Austin for the crime of murder, the site, which is now marked with a plaque embedded into the road, had claimed between 40,000 and 60,000 victims. With the expansion of the list of capital crimes, most were hung for theft and arson, with some uh, after returning from transportation before completion of their sentence. Some women were executed for infanticide, and there are even a few recorded capital sentences carried out for sodomy. More than the ignominy of dissection was the knowledge, at least early on, that those who were to be carved up could not expect a decent Christian burial afterwards. Within the 1752 Murder Act, the statute originally had specifically stated that, quote, in no case whatsoever the body of any murderer shall be suffered to be buried. That was later changed. But even those attempting to rescue the body of one of their own after a hanging did so under the threat of transportation to the colonies for a minimum of seven years. And should they, by dint of circumstance, escape and return to England, they too would face a penalty of death. There should be no illusions, however, of any sense of concerted organisation around the intermittent riots which hit the Tyburn hangings before the passage of the Murder Act in 1832. And that act itself did little to quell the public perception of the surgeons and anatomists in their ceaseless quest for bodies as pure degenerates. In a thrilling treatise on the subject, Peter Linebor sets forth some postulates as to why England's tough judicial policy had provoked such a public outcry. Um, it's a book called In Albion's, uh, Albion's Fatal Tree, Crime and Society in 18th Century England. It's an excellent uh, book and worth reading. But it's of equal interest, I think, to consider why similarly harsh sentencing in other countries had such little comparable public response as it did in England. In Italy, for example, a sentence for anatomization on top of the death penalty was generally accepted without rancor as the lower social classes were already bearing the brunt of the steepest judicial punishments. The Florentine doctor and botanist Antonio Cocchi had already written how indifferent the public was to dissection of the hanged and the benign acceptance of one's fate and the power the state had over those transgressing its laws was evident by the sheer lack of any equivalently violent Italian response to match that of the Tyburn riots 
uh, in England. Even the enlightened Bolognese Cardinal Prospero Lambertini, who later became Pope Benedict XIV, had expressed the opinion that, quote, the prince possesses dominion over the bodies of the condemned. And there was no concern about this sort of thing in Italy. And with similar laws in France, which permitted anatomization after execution, there were very few skirmishes that centred on a public perception that the laws were excessively harsh. Um, the average man in the street knew the fate awaiting him for the pettiest thievery, should he contemplate ignoring judicial sentiment and resolve. London had become, as the historian Alexander Andrews had described it, quote, a city of the gallows, identified by its mechanistic cruelty, I think just as much as Paris was so marked a generation on through her guillotine. That comes from Alexander Andrews, the 18th century, on illustrations of the manners and customs of our grandfathers, which was written in 1855. By the early part of the 18th century, the public tolerance for the anatomization of the hanged waned. Throngs of the common people, who were just as vociferous as they'd always been, now raised their objections to the practice, and the transitional sporadic violence of the mob spilled over into open conflict with some frequency. But without any real structure and articulated demands, this movement, if it may be so defined, was unable to spread in the same way that earlier riots like that of Sacreville or later the Gordon riots directed against the Catholics had so quickly escalated. Just for the sake of history, in 1710, the Sacreville riots were a series of political and religious uprisings sparked off by an influx into England of Calvinists from Europe and compounded by heavy tax levies imposed after the War of Spanish Succession between about 1701 to 1712 when Spain relinquished the Netherlands, the Duchy of Milan and Sardinia to the Habsburg, uh, when Sicily went to the Duchy of Savoy and Gibraltar and Menorca to the English. The Gordon riots, on the other hand, of 1780 required the militia to quell uprisings which had stemmed from a perception that Catholics were being appeased and looked after after the Papers Act had been released in 1788 that was designed to mitigate Catholic discrimination in England, which was largely a Protestant country. And those riots extended to the prisons, destroying the Newgate ultimately and also the clink. These sorts of Tyburn riots were not as well structured as those. Uh, in one notable disturbance in 1749 amongst the Tyburn riots, Theodore Jansen, who was the Sheriff of London, had seen fit to preemptively escort one of the condemned prisoners to the gallows himself, personally cutting them down and, after they were hanged, ushering the body for burial at St Clement's and away from the clutches of the surgeons. Jansen was a an MP in the House of Commons and also an alderman of Bread Street Ward, and he was highly praised for protecting the body of a high-profile prisoner, a fellow by the name of Bossavern Penles, who was executed after he'd been found with stolen linen during a series of riots which had damaged a group of bawdy houses in London. Jansen's quick and novel use of troops was highly praised for preventing the surgeons from getting their hands on the body of Pendlers and 
penless provoked particularly a large one of these Tyburn riots. Even if dissection was not without its utilitarian value and uh, was, quote, a useful restitution to the public, in the words of the commentarist Bernard de Montville, the accused still suffered the double blow to their dignity afforded by a post-mortem dissection. De Montville's book was an inquiry into the causes of the frequent executions at Tyburn, 1725. But no amount of uh, enjoining of the political economy by hailing how the contribution of someone's body for dissection could benefit society was able to appease the angry multitude and all such temperate responses from the surgeons could provoke was a collective hostility. They were hated. The fights between the families or friends of the condemned and the doctors became intolerable. And so a bill was drafted late in 1723. It found its first reading in the Commons by February of the following year. And the bill as introduced had the rather weighty title Enacting a Confirmation of Powers formerly granted by Charles for the College of Physicians, to take certain bodies executed for felony and other offences for anatomies. Anyway, this became the Murder Act of 1725, and its preamble left no room for doubt about its intentions, stating that, quote, it is become necessary that some further terror and peculiar mark of infamy be added to the punishment. In other words, beyond execution, that you should be chopped up. After the enactment of the Act, the lumbering process of legislation kicked into gear, claiming its first victim to be transferred from the gallows for public anatomisation. A one-armed man, Thomas Wilford, who'd killed his young wife in a fit of jealous rage when she'd returned late after a stroll in the park. Wilford, having married the former prostitute Sarah, only four days before, had slashed her neck with a knife so deeply that he'd nearly decapitated her. A nice story. If the motives of an angry mob can actually be crystallised, one might speculate that the surgeons, before they got their murder act, imagined that they had some kind of right under royal decree to dissect almost anyone they wanted. They'd underestimated the resolve of an angry rabble squeezed by record unemployment and harshly punitive sentencing who knew only too well what the surgeons really thought of the lower classes. They couldn't have been more cynical hearing of the anatomists' constant wanting for bodies that none themselves, when taken by death from the warmth of their own beds, would have ever pledged. We assume that exposed to so much death that somehow more death and its desecration by dissection would be greeted rather passively by the crowds. But the alliance between government and anatomists to deny ordinary folk a dignified and intact death was ultimately a bridge too far. Its anatomical iconography would be immortalised in a poem by John Taylor, 1578-1630, the so-called water poet, so named for his maritime experiences on the River Thames and for his life as a guild boatman. He wrote, I've heard sundry men oft times dispute of trees that in one year will twice bear fruit. But if a man note Tyburn will appear that that's a tree that bears twelve times a year, I muse it should 
so fruitful be, for why I understand the root of it is dry. It bears no leaf, no bloom, or no bud. The rain that makes it fructify is blood. I further note the fruit which it produces doth seldom serve for profitable uses, except the skilful surgeon's industry do make dissection of anatomy. Taylor concedes later in the poem of the economy of the body trade at Tyburn, how it was generated. He quotes, The reason it is apparent to the eyes that what it bears are dead commodities. The public restlessness that followed the Murder Act culminated 80 years later in the Anatomy Act of 1832. The new legislation, which was designed by those parliamentarians sharing Jeremy Bentham's utilitarian idealism that anatomical dissection of the body was in the common interest, did little else, however, than to transfer the burden of anatomization from the murderers in the 1752 Act to the poor in the 1832 Anatomy Act. But in suggesting that those dying through no fault of their own in the infirmaries or in the almshouses and workhouses and whose bodies lay unclaimed should be simple fodder for the anatomists, all the best-intentioned legislators had succeeded in doing was to effectively criminalise poverty. The conflation of events that resulted in the passage of the Anatomy Act on its second attempt through Parliament could hardly have been in a way less fortuitous, and it was preceded by a series of particularly unfortunate events. The battle lines in passage of the Act were drawn with on one side the disgruntled physician Thomas Walkley. He was so convinced of the hidden as well as the overt corruptions of appointments within the London hospitals and of the horrors of their negligent surgery that in 1823 he established the magazine The Lancet as a bulwark against the surgical establishment. It was used not only as a launching pad for much of his revelatory invective, but also for the many lawsuits he personally litigated against the very hospitals that had denied him a position of consultant authority. Added to the impetus for the Anatomy Act was the surgeons themselves, whose direct complaints um, to the Member of Parliament for Bridport, the solid Benthamite Henry Warburton, um, 1784 to 1858, had initiated a select parliamentary committee in April of 1828 whose task it was to examine hospital appointments and particularly surgical negligence. Its brief would extend to the most suitable methods for procurement of bodies for the medical schools on which to practice and lead to the passage of the Act four years later opening the supply of corpses for dissection in England, Scotland, Ireland and Wales. I suppose as much impetus as the push by surgeons for a change in the law was also an open pamphlet authored by Bentham's physician, Dr Southwood Smith, which was called The Use of the Dead for the Living, first published anonymously in 1824 in the Westminster Review, and which were sent to many members of Parliament. Before this, the need for bodies had become acute, uh, as I've said, when the main thrust of anatomical research was coming from the private anatomy schools 
The public hospitals, St Thomas's, St Bartholomew's and St George's, had recently opened up their own dissecting schools, and these new departments stood a much greater chance of receiving bodies for dissection than their colleagues in the private sector. Anatomy schools separately opened at Westminster Hospital in 1719, the London Hospital in 1740, and the Middlesex Hospital in 1743. The college uh, also passed a bylaw in 1823 trying to restrict anatomy certificates to only what it regarded as recognised schools and to insist on students having certificates of attendance at two accredited dissections. Such regulation, along with the perceived corruption within the public hospitals, were partly an impetus for the profusion of private anatomy schools, starting with Mr Edward Norse, who opened the first private classes in London and which soon encouraged the public hospital appointees like Messrs Percival Pott and Caesar Hawkins to follow suit. And there were two courses, for example, at St Thomas's, one beginning on the 1st of October, the autumn course, and one commencing on June the 20th, the spring course. Uh, This one, Sir Astley Cooper delivered ten lectures, so there were four on the head and six on the bones, and his former teacher, Henry Klein, also delivered a set on the muscles. Later, a very popular course was run by Joshua Brooks, who ran courses all year round on corpses that had been pre-treated with a secret preservative. In Richardson's estimation, the acquisition of suitable bodies for dissection could only be obtained by, quote, stealth, coercion, voluntary donation or inducement. That comes from her um, death dissection and the destitute, where for a time the principal method was through, obviously, the unscrupulous resurrection men. But whilst Warburton's committee was meeting in uh, an effort really to divine a public proposal where the surgeons could have better access to the pool of potentially available bodies, there was actually a hidden tragedy unfolding. Two men, William Burke and William Hare, neither of whom had previously worked as resurrectionists, murdered 16 innocent and vulnerable people in Edinburgh over a 10-month period between 1827 and 1828, delivering their still-warm bodies directly to the door of the surgeon professor, Robert Knox. It was only in an environment already wholly complicit in an illegal trade of dead bodies that some criminal would ultimately realise the benefit in not waiting for death itself, but would rather intervene in this natural process and kill people for financial reward. It's wrongly contested, however, that Warburton's committee was a reaction to these murders, when, in fact, Burke and Hare were caught, arrested and tried five months after delivery of the parliamentary report in July 1828. But other events would have accelerated formation of the select committee in any event. In March 1828, Sir John, or Baron Hullock, uh, 1767 to 1829, presided over a case where the body of a young woman, Jane Fairclough, had been stolen from a Warrington cemetery, and in his summation he had declared 
that all of the accused, which included a medical student, should be punished to the fullest extent of the law. The origin of grave robbing and its ancillary partner in crime, body snatching, both used for the purpose of dissection, are unknown, but they predate the early 17th century. Open discussion of the practices as shown activities formed part of the formal documentation of the Royal College of Surgeons in Edinburgh as early as 1721, with the college in a pamphlet politely suggesting to their fellows and graduates that involvement in this type of practice would be considered ungentlemanly. It's been documented in formal testimony in the Select Committee of 1828 that medical students would frequently accompany body snatchers and may have even paid for their tuition by bartering the corpse. Proof of direct participation of the colleges was never sustained, but the fact that there's no written record of complicity, of course, is not a case for their absolution. Despite the fact that there are no formal charters that are traceable openly recommending auctions or bills of sale for corpses, Ken uh, Russell, my old uh, boss, the historian anatomist, wrote of such sales taking place in the second half of the 18th century. Grave rumping was not in itself a crime, more really considered a misdemeanour, what was called compra homos mortis, against good manners, and resurrectionists were only prosecuted, if at all, for stealing items of clothing or other accoutrements from the grave, since the body was not considered uh, property. Mary Roach, in her rather wonderful book, Stiff the Curious Life of Cadavers, which was put out by Viking in 2003, writes, quote, that if one stole a corpse's cufflinks, they could be prosecuted, but not if they stole the corpse, unquote. Cadavers could therefore not be willed to anyone, and during the American Civil War, African-American slaves, as property, were often transferred after death for a fee to some northern medical schools. The law pertaining to the legality of grave robbing was changed so that it was made a misdemeanour in the 1788 case of Rex v Lynn, which was King's Bench, and cemented in other precedent cases. There was Rex v Young and also Rex v Cundick, uh, which were examples of that. In 1846, on the other side of the Atlantic, the Developing American Medical Association, in a formal charter, openly recommended that physicians should distance themselves from the grave robbers and from the risk of any guilt by association with such uh, practices. Uh, That comes from the Proceedings of the National Medical Conventions of New York in May of 1846 and Philadelphia of 1847. Short then of the most charitable donation for the betterment of science, however, bodies were able to enter the dissecting rooms. The professors had already reasoned that alternative means beyond those legally available were an absolute necessity. In solidarity with Bentham, who had openly willed his body after death to be anatomised and embalmed, in America, John Warren, 1753-1815, who is a founder of the Massachusetts General Hospital, professor of anatomy, had declared to his anatomy faculty that he too wished that after his death he might be anatomised, with parts of his own body placed on public display. And he wrote in his memoirs of how his colleagues had scoffed at the idea. 
Warren, um, whose father was also a professor, had uh, also founded the McLean Asylum for the Insane. The disparity between the private views concerning donation and the public pronouncements was no more hypocritical than the attitude towards the resurrectionists. In some desperation, Dr. Angelo L. Ceresi, 1877 to 1951, in a meeting of the Fellows of the New York Academy of Medicine in 1913, had proposed that all incoming medical students, as a condition of entry into the school, should be forced, like any indentured servant, and in gratitude, presumably, to so pledge their bodies for dissection. Ceresi's motion didn't actually find a seconder, uh, and there's a beautiful uh, little um, vignette about it in Philip Van Ingen's The New York Academy of Medicine, its first hundred years, which was published in 1949. I'm grateful uh, for that reference um, to uh, uh, Dr. Michael Sapol. The American experience of their own resurrectionists uh, invoked a particular ire, but the rioting which started against the doctors was not, as in England, uh, either an expression of a class war or because of judicial complicity in dissections or surreptitious attempts by the medical establishment to secure bodies from the gallows. Writing in America against their own brand of resurrectionists and more openly against the doctors <coughs> was in effect a public movement. The most famous of these riots was the doctors' riot, or the resurrection riot of 1788, which broke out just four months after the British had withdrawn from New York during the War of Independence. Much of the detail of this uh, riot is disputed as the names of those involved were suppressed, but it began supposedly when a mason's son, whose mother had just died, spotted a human arm dangling out of a window at the back of a hospital where he was playing. And the child went home and informed his father, who in some distress went to his wife's grave at Trinity Church, only to find that it had been disturbed. Within a very short time, on April the 13th, a large angry crowd had gathered and had pushed its way into the anatomy room, all but destroying it and rounding up what body parts they could muster for formal burial. Such collective anger could not have occurred spontaneously and there had been concerns for some while about the desecration of some of the commoner grave sites with the daily advertiser fanning the flames by reporting tales of grave robbing from the Negro burial grounds which had been separately constructed and set aside from the white cemetery by the Dutch Reformed Church as far back as 1641. Um, King's College Medical School, before the Revolutionary Wars, revived as Columbia College. In 1776, in the middle of the war, King's was abandoned by the Crown, leaving the entire faculty, including the medical school, with just a professor of French and a Latin and Greek instructor. Under Columbia's aegis, New York City Hospital was established in 1773 at the end of Broadway, bounded north and south by Duane and Anthony, which is now Worth, and uh, east and west by Broadway and Church Streets. Duane and Broadway formed the southern boundary of the hospital grounds for those now in New York, a block north of the Negro burial ground, so that the bodies would have been pretty easy to obtain.
there's a useful book on the structure of that uh, geography by Isaac Phelps Stokes called The Iconography of Manhattan Island, which was uh, um, published in, I think, about 1928. As for the advertiser reporting concerns about the Negro burial ground, its February 29th uh, editorial had been particularly inflammatory, recording, quote, after having stripped them as far as possible of all that ennobles human nature and gives to life its charms, is it not the extreme of brutality to take from them the gloomy consolation of looking forward to the grave, like the patient man in his distress as a place where the wicked cease from troubling and where the weary be at rest? It was well known that these burial grounds were being pilfered for bodies. Although the sheriff dispersed this crowd that had started there after the child had uh, reported this, and they saved the doctors in the room from certain death, the impression that the matter was resolved was illusory, bringing an even larger and angrier crowd the next morning. It had even led two dissident students to brazenly violate Trinity's graveyard once more, ignoring the recent attack on the school. Two medical students exhumed the, the body that night of a white woman from the main Trinity churchyard. And there were also, as we know, two doctors' riots in Baltimore, one in 1789 and uh, in 1807, and the last actually in St. Louis in 1844. Um, things got so bad in this particular riot that the governor, George Clinton, was called in to quell the disturbance. Emerging to address the mob and flanked by his Chancellor, Robert Livingston, and the Mayor, James Duane, Clinton promised, quote, every satisfaction which the laws of the country can give, unquote. If his words calmed some, they seemed to infuriate others, and the crowd gathered in such alarming numbers by the end of the day that Duane invoked the militia, much as Sheriff Jansen had done in London 40 years before. The mob marched upon the jail where the, where the doctors had been kept for safety, pelting stones and rocks at the guardsmen who seemed powerless to stop them in a siege that lasted many hours. Again Clinton came, but now with New York's most powerful judicial and fighting elite, including Justice John Jay, Alexander Hamilton, General John Lamb and Baron von Steuben. Clinton made sure that he was flanked by the highest level support. John Jay later became the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Hamilton, one of the founding fathers of the United States and its first Secretary of the Treasury, was killed in a duel by Vice President Aaron Burr. John Lamb was collector of the Port of New York and had led the 2nd Continental Artillery Regiment during the War of Independence. He was responsible for the return of much of the artillery back to New York City after the Revolutionary War. Baron Friedrich Wilhelm August Heinrich Ferdinand, also Ludolf Gerhard Augustin von Steuben, was an Inspector General of the Continental Army and he'd been George Washington's Chief of Staff during the last part of the War of Independence. So these were pretty significant men that came uh, in New York to quell this riot. 
The 150 men they'd mustered could not hold the crowd hurling stones and bats, and Mr Justice Jay was felled unconscious. Von Steuben too was floored in an assault and ordered his troops to open fire. One of the protesters was bayoneted coming through a window, and four men were killed. Three men were killed instantly, and a fourth died of his wounds. Three militiamen were killed on the other side. The two students who had snatched a body from the first night of the riot, George Sweeney, who was also a street musician, and Isaac Gano, a student of physic, were caught and tried for their offence. The sentences of both Sweeney and Gano are unknown, and they're not included in the New York penal directories. And by January the 6th, 1789, the legislature had pushed forward its, quote, act to prevent the odious practice of digging up and removing for the purposes of dissection dead bodies interred in cemeteries or burial places, unquote. It's a nice title for an act. It was the first piece of legislation of its type enacted in the United States designed to stop the practice of grave robbing, although it proved relatively ineffective and was poorly implemented. But it had at least on the surface restored some order. Prosecution was still difficult. American law post-revolution was essentially based on British law, which forbade exhumation and disinterment, but which avoided the rule of felony as a body was considered to have no legal status. And there were variable punishments for body snatching, which mostly included minor fines, small periods of imprisonment, or even the occasional lash. It would take more than that, though, to quell the public disquiet. The variability in the laws was such that although grave robbing was discouraged and punishable by a term in prison, legal complicity for willing accomplices or indictments for those who already uh, committed such acts was rare, unless there was particular interest in a missing body, either by family or friends, the letter of the law was seldom carried out. The disaster that became the Birkenhair scandal was a major stimulus for change. The origin of the term birking in its literal interpretation is the notion that someone might be smothered and their body bartered for its value to an anatomist, but it's become synonymous with a method by which people can suppress or evade an inconvenient question or fact. That aside, the whole affair was the inspiration for Robert Louis Stevenson's story, The Body Snatcher, first published in the Paul Mall Christmas Extra in December 1884. And although uh, often told the story of Burke and Hare, it's a tale of such notoriety and such impact on the performance of dissection that it deserves a brief retelling. And that's what I'll do in the next uh, podcast. Thanks so much.